0: Hello everyone, and welcome to Wise Brussels Voices and our series with women leaders. I'm Ilana Beitel. I'm a member of Wise Brussels, that's Women in International Security, and I'm your host for this conversation with women who are leading and shaping the world in many ways and fields. Before the pandemic, before the war in Ukraine, before the world became focused upon power struggles and food crises. main source of global anxiety was terrorism. And in truth, it is still a significant issue for many states, be it in Africa or Europe or Asia or the Americas. Such states have also developed sophisticated counter-terrorism capabilities that involve policing and security services, alongside criminal justice responses, which is trials and police and courts to the every person. But here's the snag, the usual snag, The number of women in both counter-terrorism and criminal justice response is small. But to address this problem, WISE Brussels, funded by the European Union and developed in close cooperation with the European Commission's Directorate General for Foreign Policy Instruments, has produced a truly excellent report on promoting the role of women in security and counter-terrorism. These are guidelines for the criminal justice response to terrorism. On behalf of WISE, the project was led and managed by Pauline Massard and our own Florence Ferrando, our producer, Technical Suprema, and a woman truly committed to inclusion and parity. And she is with us today. And with her is Dr. Jessica White, Senior Research Fellow on Terrorism and Conflict at RUSI, the Royal United Service Institute an expert on preventing and countering violent extremism, policy and programming, as well as gender mainstreaming strategies. Welcome, ladies. As ever, it is truly a pleasure to have you here with us today. And as ever, let's start with hearing a bit about your careers and your backgrounds. Jessica.
1: Thanks for having me today. I'm I'm really pleased to be joining uh, both of you. Uh, So, yeah, I I come from the space of of counterterrorism, from the space of security. I um, started my career working in counterterrorism with the United States military. Uh, I was in in intelligence fields, uh, and then I moved on to do my PhD looking at gender mainstreaming strategies within counterterrorism policy. So this is a space that I have spent a a great deal of time exploring uh, and trying to uh, expand. I think people's thinking about what we mean when we talk about gender mainstreaming in this space and what the challenges to it are. And I think this project that the Wise Brussels has been working on uh, provides some really excellent perspective to the challenges of, of the women who are in this space, uh, the challenges that they uh, face in sort of in living in this space and working in this space and trying to uh, advance in this space. And then also how do we get more women involved? Uh, And what can we do to combat this sort of institutional gender blindness, uh, and uh, gender inequalities that exist that often push women out of this space. So I think it's it's a great project, and I'm, I'm happy to discuss it uh, further as we talk today. Uh, it's certainly something that's close to, to my heart and my research, uh, and I think something that is really important uh, for the future of counterterrorism to be more equal and reconcile the fact that uh, counterterrorism and security policy more wholly needs to reflect the populations that it's aiming to protect. Uh, the whole population, including everyone. So that's a little bit about me.
0: Excellent. Just one small question. When you joined the military, what drove you to become a soldier? Yeah, so I, I wanted to,
1: uh, I mean, in a sense, I wanted to to serve my country. I wanted to get involved in security. Uh, certainly, I mean, my my uh, young <laughs> age, I was shaped by the events of 9-11 um, and sort of that became, you know, a, a huge part of the conversation around security. I studied uh, political science and international studies, and really found myself interested in the space of security and uh, security policy. And it's been useful. I mean, I, d- I don't know that I knew this at the time of joining, but it's been very useful to my academic progression to sort of understand what a practitioner does and the actual space of, of working, you know, on anti-terrorism operations as a military um, officer, and, and then moving into the academic side of it. And it's really useful to help sort of have the perspective of both perspectives to help sort of think bridge that gap that often exists between, between the two spaces. Uh, so uh, yeah, I, I don't know if I can tell you exactly what drove me into
0: it, but it certainly was a good experience. Well, that's excellent to know because I think um, the perception is, and this is what we'll get into with this discussion in a minute, um, is that women aren't there or there's not enough women, but also we don't really know why in the sense of what drives women to join or not join um, security services. Florence, tell us a bit about your background.
2: So for my background, uh, I'm based in Brussels now since uh, five years as a senior consultant for uh, a visa partner. So I work a lot on defense and security topic, mostly being the geek of the team and looking at the technological uh, forecasting in for the armed forces. So I work a lot on Type of uh, buzzword you can heard such as uh, artificial intelligence, edge uh, computing, and this kind of thing, and debunk uh, what it is uh, to um, normal people, and not engineering, and what how it can be uh, it can be used by uh, security and defense domain, and of course, uh, it is today my hat that I, that I wear. I'm a member since also almost five years of wise wise Ten Committee, which led me to be the producer, co-producer of this podcast uh, and as well have the amazing opportunity to work on this really interesting uh, topic, which led me to met and uh, Jessica uh, before and to uh, discuss uh, discuss this. So that's why I'm really happy also to be here with Jessica today, because she's really have an interesting perspective, I think, on the topic and go a little bit beyond of the usual things you can heard uh, about it. And as just say, uh, since you have also a, a operational background, I think it is really interesting to uh build uh the bridge between this t- different community with such a really interesting profile
0: and just to understand also from your part two things one of them where did your interest in security come from, and the other thing, where did your amazing technological capability come from
2: um so for the first thing, I think uh my first interest was really in high school for political science. So I remember at that time I was really young and naive, so I was wanted to, you know, work for maybe political party, help for campaign and et cetera. Then I understand that really you can work on that side, so I dropped the thing. Um, and I remember, I think it was my interest in defense and security matters really came when I started my master in France um, on international relationship, and I really had an amazing teacher uh, who teaches a lot of it about defense industry, but also all the mechanisms during the Cold War. And this is, I think, here that I, uh, I really wanted to work in this field. And for the second part, for the technology uh, appetite that I can have, I think I'm really curious and I really love to learn new stuff and more, I think it is really part of my personality to really look at complex things and that I don't understand over the fir- on the first side uh, and that no one understands and I really love to end up and say, okay, I get it and I can explain new in like two sentences that's my I think my favorite things to do uh, in, in life so I'm really curious about new things and uh, I really want to debunk complex things on that so technology is the perfect topic for that.
0: Well thank you very much ladies for telling us about your careers and let's start at the very very beginning what is counter-terrorism? Jessica? I think uh
1: Counterterrorism probably means different things to different people in different parts of the world, but I think the way that we're discussing counterterrorism right now and probably the way that it's been shaped in this report is that in that context of the last 20 years of counterterrorism, where it has become something very exceptional, it's an exceptional response to what has been seen as an exceptional security problem of the last two decades, Uh, it is a suite essentially of policies and programs of efforts to counter what was seen as an international security threat presented by uh, what started with terrorist organizations like al-Qaeda um, and sort of Islamist extremist organizations in the, in the late 90s um, that presented a serious enough s- a series of attacks that threatened international security. So counterterrorism has been developed, the counterterrorism we're speaking about today, I think, has been developed within the international system as a uh, Often a coalition effort between countries uh, to address uh, a terrorist threat in foreign on foreign soil. Uh, there's a shift now to where we need to think about our domestic threats as well, which I think have been overlooked for the last two decades. Uh, but it usually includes what we've been talking about the sort of hard and soft measures of there's been you know military efforts to secure places that are have been you know the the place of attacks or uh, territory that's been taken over by terrorist labeled organizations. There's been policing efforts within domestic uh, environments to deal with uh, homegrown terrorism. There have been prevention efforts, so that's the softer side often of this uh, discussion about counterterrorism. So, it has brought in a lot more people from social services, from development programming, uh, from from the types of programming that would have existed outside of counterterrorism previously have now been brought into these efforts to prevent or to address what we call the drivers of violent extremism or terrorism. Uh, So there is definitely a a large spectrum of people that are now part of what we call counterterrorism, and it has, has become a significant element of security, a significant element or focus of security policy. But I think we will see that sort of shift back the other direction a little bit now as we're dealing with Um, maybe more great power conflict with the Ukraine uh, war happening and other crises like pandemics and climate change and everything else.
0: So in many ways, it's a sort of sobriquet for a variety of activities um, which are sort of related to policing, but not quite and related to the military, but not quite and is somewhere in the middle between them all.
2: Yeah, and I will just add on that that it is quite difficult to define as well because there is no legal consensus regarding the definition of terrorism. First, it can be really difficult to to define. But I think, just to like put it well, I think it is really you you can see it a little bit as a supply chain where everyone comes at one point and and brings something into the table. So you have the policy side and level who's gonna say. This is a terrorist threat and characterize it. For example, you have then the law enforcement who's going to do investigation, arrestation, interrogation, and this kind of thing. You have the intelligence, uh, of course, who's going to go more deeply into the information uh, analysis and data, but you also have uh, detention as well uh, because when you have terrorists then judge and sentences, uh, you have to make sure as well to not have uh, other... um, Radicalization into the into the facilities as well, so it's really a patchwork of a lot of different job position, and moreover, uh, it depends the country as well because it's not the same thing in uh, in every country in the in the world.
0: Right. Well, that's very interesting. Um, let's revert back to the actual report, and on page eight, the security index. Um, I noticed that in both 2021 and 2022, there's not more than 22, maximum 23% of women involved in policing and security services. Let me ask you both, why do you think that is and how can we change that? Jess? I think it's it's a
1: convoluted answer, a long answer maybe. I think if i was to start at the beginning of why i think that is i think we have to go back to look at the sort of the realist nature of the way the international political system the modern international political system was established and sort of the system within which it was established i think if we if we look back to the philosophy behind it it's it's all about the security of the state uh, the citizens of the state defending the security of the state. And in that sort of the theory in which this was built, men were the only citizens of the state. They were the only ones considered as citizens of the state. So I think originally it really blocked out the views of of women uh, even as citizens of the state or other categories, other um, marginalized categories of, of individuals that didn't fit that sort of profile of the man that could defend the state. And I did not, that's a very academic answer. But I think because the institutions were built in that way that they have historically always been resistant to inclusion, resistant to diversity within, uh, within the institutions themselves and the sort of very patriarchal nature of the ways in which most political and security institutions operate really encourages, I mean, why would you give up that power if you didn't have to? Uh, the people who sit in those halls um, are, you know, it's, it's common sense that they would be resistant to giving up the power that they have, but they're also doing the institutions, I think, a disservice by not diversifying, by not um, acknowledging that there are so many more perspectives of the citizens of the state, and that there is perhaps a need to look beyond just the protection of the state to the protection of the individuals that live in that state. Um, and really, I think, that is the heart of the problem. It's it's that the institutions themselves are are so resistant to gender mainstreaming that they of course can't have policies and programs that are gender mainstreamed because there's not the base from which to build that policy and programming. So I I am always saying sort of where we need to start is to look inwards at our own institutions before we can really encourage gender mainstreaming to be coming out of these institutions because the institutions themselves are very resistant um, yeah, I don't know. That's a very uh, how to how to do that is a harder a harder answer to come to. Uh, I'm certainly always making the cases to my you know my military colleagues that I still um, speak with about counterterrorism that there are absolutely arguments that you can make at the strategic, the operational levels that gender mainstreaming improves success, and we have to keep making these arguments sort of to military forces, to police forces. Um, to really encourage them to make changes within the institutions. Uh, but it also, I think, has to be a whole of the institution change shift that is uh, demanded and encouraged. Uh, and I think ultimately institutions like security institutions work off the trust of the populations they serve. And so until the populations demands that change from their security institutions, that um, there won't ever be a complete transformation of the institutions themselves in the sort of the gender inequality within them apart from gender inequality is there also problems with misogyny of course yeah i think that's it's very clear I, you can look at cases of like what's going on in the uk right now with the review of their own um, police forces um any i mean all militaries have problems with sexual assault within the military sexual assault of service members upon other service members uh it's it's a very prevalent so very common problem and probably uh a problem that is hardest for them to, or there, you know, is the least amount of appetite to deal with in a lot of ways because, and this is sort of something that I look at in my work, um, because of the way in which the environments of security forces often encourage training and unit building, it's often encourages misogyny. It encourages a very sort of in group, out group sense of how to build that unit structure. And often in that in group, Sense of how to build it. There is racism. There's misogyny. There's uh, very much an othering of of uh, people. And if you are part of the security services, then you want to be in the in group, right? That's the whole. You want to be part of that unit. Uh, so it's really difficult for people once they get in to sort of make a choice whether they're going to uh, look the other way, you know, from these sort of everyday racisms, everyday misogyny, you know, everyday sexism.s um in favor of of keeping that in-group, you know that unit's uh, structure going, or if they're going to challenge that structure by challenging you know what they're seeing. And it is a really difficult position to put people in. But certainly, I would say you know misogyny, racism, it's all prevalent within security forces, uh, largely because of of the way that it is wielded sometimes as a tool to and it is part of sort of the the culture of these security services.
0: Florence,
2: were you surprised by these findings? Um, No, I wasn't so much surprised about the findings and actually the number of she uh, security are really large because they're looking at women in security in general and not in city. Well, I was surprised by really conducting the research phase of the project, how we miss data regarding how many really women are working on city services in this different institution. Um, only that, the first, the number in total, but what they're actually doing in this uh, in this organization and services, are they a uh, decision maker? Uh, are they are just uh, assistants, whatever, doing administrative support and not really frontline mission uh, as well? So I was more surprised by the really lack of data uh, for each services organization and security organization that are in charge at one point of one of several city counterterrorism uh, activity and what I think I was the, mm, the most uh, surprised by uh, sometimes depending on the region and the area, it really goes beyond the western cliché we can have. Some testimony of, uh, for example, uh, Gilles de Kerkhoff who was really True supporter of the of the project and part of the strategic steering committee of the project. To really say, when he was uh, the EU uh, coordinator for counterterrorism, but when he went to Jordan, it was mostly mostly women on the Jordan part. So we can have a lot of cliché about the Middle East uh, region regarding the misogyny and the place of women in the society and specifically in security services. But we can be surprised uh, as well on that. So.
0: One of the interesting points you raise here in the report is that, and I'm quoting, um, counterterrorism implies risk assessment, in particular to evaluate the probability of attacks and to determine their consequences. It appears that men and women tend to adopt different approaches when assessing risks. In a nutshell, women tend to promote less risky choices and differ in their estimates of the odds and severity of negative outcomes. I found that extremely interesting because it reminded me that um, uh, it has become very evident over the past few years that um, most uh, medical tests, most um, medicines, have traditionally, historically, been tested on men, not on women, because it was perceived that women getting periods would be, and their different hormones, which was an elegant way of saying that, ooh, unreliable. And this included um, female rats and mice and other lab uh, um, animals. So basically, all perceptions of pain were done um, entirely on assessing how men react to it. Um, and the same goes for many medications that were entirely assessed according to men's reactions to them and not women. Um, are we actually saying the same thing about our security services, that many assessments, many, uh, a lot of understanding of threats a lot of dealing with risk is very much male-perceived and male-dominated and that potentially women could bring different ideas and assessments to the table?
2: Uh, I think, yeah, we, we could set that on on a, on a sense, for example, when it comes to analyse the, the threat, detecting different type of um, weak signals, for example, for radicalizations and etc. I think, in a nutshell, is always... We can summarize it by the fact that if you have different perspective uh, around the table, it's for sure you have a more comprehensive approach of a problem. If you have women in the room, men in the room, but also diversity is not only about gender, you can also add a different factor to that as well, to really get the, fo- the, the big picture of a problem and I provide solution to it. So I think it applies as well to uh, the counterterrorism on that side. But I think it is more difficult to maybe quantify how we uh, analyze the threat, how we identify terrorist uh, threat, for example. It is more difficult to see how male dominance on it influences the the thinking and the strategy. But you can see definitely on equipment, for example. Bulletproof uh, jackets, they were tested on men most of the time. And the direct consequence on that is that It exposes more the security of a woman operator on the field as well, if they are not protected correctly. So if you look at equipment infrastructure as well, you see this kind of details that tell you that there were no women in the room when the decision was made to procure certain equipment or to decide how to uh, build facilities. Uh, other thing, for example, is human resource policies of this organization as well. For example, until not so long ago, I think it was in Spain, when you were a female uh, police uh, officer, if you got pregnant, it stopped your uh, progression in terms of training and you have to restart the whole process of training, which is quite a problem as well.
1: Can I just add, add to that? Yeah. I think. Um It's a really interesting question about about do men and women perceive risk differently. I I think there's a little bit of a warning I would insert in there that we we try and stay away from essentializing people according to their gender so I think there's an argument I would make that maybe you do see you know based on sort of average of numbers that men and women would perceive risk differently but perhaps that is because Men and women have been raised in society to think a certain way or directed down a certain path of this is your role, this is how you think about things. So it might not be that it is because inherently a woman would think about something differently or assess risk differently than a man would, but it's because of the way society has shaped of this is how women think about things this is how men think about things and I think Florence raised a point uh, uh, that we really need to remember in that everybody has more than one point of identity and they all intersect so if I'm uh, you know of a certain race a class a gender sort of all of these are going to have a different level of importance to my personal identity are going to take a different level of prominence in the way that I assess risk if I'm a you know a white Western woman, I'm going to think about security differently than if I'm of a, of a different race, of a different uh, socioeconomic status, living in a different neighborhood. So I think ultimately we need more perspective at the table of risk assessments, rather than it is that we need more necessarily you know ticking the boxes. It's not about ticking the boxes of how many men, men and women that we have sitting at the table, but trying to get the most diversity that we can around that table because. The more diversity and perspective that you have, the more lived experiences you have at that table and the more, you know, somebody could raise, oh, I had this experience because of these identity markers. So we need to think about that, you know, and that helps to foresee the challenges you might meet, you know, in your operations, or it helps you to, to think ahead about what risks might arise that you would never have even thought of if you didn't have that person sitting at the table who had had that experience in their life. And I think one other thing to say about risk assessment specifically is that the tools that we use for risk assessment are very gender inept. So they're very sort of gender blind. I mean, you, you can say that they're neutral, um, but the fact that they don't really none of them, none of those sort of significant CT risk assessment tools have a, a very well integrated uh, gender lens in them That it, it leaves it lacking, right, because we know that gender influences how and why people get involved in, in terrorism. So if we're not using that gender lens to assess that risk, if we're not using that gender lens to assess operations, then we're we're missing a huge piece of the puzzle, and that it actually gives the terrorists, I think that you can say this in the, in the report flow, that it gives the terrorists an advantage, right, because they're very good at wielding that, and we are not as CT professionals. Um, But I, I, yeah, I think the tools themselves and the training that goes along with those tools really has to emphasize this element of gender perspective and intersectionality because so far they haven't and they've suffered because of it.
0: Just to point out that CT is counter-terrorism. But in addition, I would just, just to um, underline everything that you're saying, I would say that in the report, you bring out very strongly the extent to which um, terrorists do play the gender card in, you bring examples from France, Ireland, Israel, Afghanistan, in which they understand that the perception of women is different, and that if you can use a woman, the chances are she will get into a situation in which she can cause damage a lot easier than if it were a man. So that is very, it's a very strong point brought out very well, I thought, in the report. Moving on in- Possibly coming back to your point about career, I was very taken on page 22 when you talk about the career cycles um, and how important they are. It is worthwhile, I think, pointing out that at least on the law side as opposed to the law enforcement side, at least um, in my generation, which is older than your generation, a lot of women lawyers, women who studied law, did prefer to go into the public service as opposed to uh, private practice because private practice was very demanding hours wise and made it very difficult to have a family at the same time. The importance of that was and in many ways it's one of the things that started me in wise and um, why we ended up creating what's now called the Brussels binder, is that the idea that there's no senior women um, always seemed to me be bonkers because, um, as I say, I knew a lot of women who by that time were in middle or even senior management in very many states, in legal and public administration departments, simply because they had started there when they were younger and, you know, driven their way up. Is that not the case in the police? Is that not the case in the military? Jess?
1: I I think it's it's not the case. And I think the first element of that is that we often see that in the counterterrorism space, women are are thought of as playing certain roles. Men are thought of as playing certain roles. There's a sense that women aren't aren't interested in or capable of violence in the way that men are. So they are pushed towards social services. They're pushed towards being, you know, sort of part of the soft side of of, of counterterrorism. When I say soft side, I I mean the sort of the preventing elements of, of counterterrorism rather than the response to terrorism. And I think that sort of has shaped the roles that women take up. Uh, Certainly there's been a longstanding argument that has moved forward relatively recently in several Western countries about what roles women can take within security services. Uh, They've been excluded from some roles um, and there's still an argument happening about whether they should be allowed into all roles uh, in the military. But you can see that sort of, I think, in the same way that you're you're saying about the way that women uh, approach the the legal services and sort of to try and work around that is that they're while there might be pre- prohibitions in place around women taking up frontline roles, you could see that they were there anyway, right? They were they were in roles that were, were not labeled as uh, what might put them at the front line, but they, if they, you know, were in intelligence services, but they were providing intelligence to an active operation, that they were they were there anyway. So I think that there are women who have made a great effort to, you know, to work within the system, to work their way up the system, but that there is such a blockade in place still that you see that there's sort of the women at the bottom level that are really, really trying to work their way up. There's a few women at the very top level that have been handpicked and put there to show that there's effort in place to to get them there. And there's very few women in that in between sort of middle to upper management level where because it's really difficult to work your way from the bottom all the way up to the top uh, in this environment that exists.
0: And what can be done, Flo, what do you think can be done to change it? You talk about it in the report.
2: The first thing is also to really, I think, raise awareness really at a young age and making sure, I think it is all about what also uh, Jessica was referring to, but it's a lot about representativity as well of women in the field. If as a young girl you see that... It's normal to be uh, female cops and to do things and etc. It shifted a bit the cliche that uh, young girls can have about what is possible for them to do and what is not uh, as well i think the and the also one of the major cliche we can have about counter terrorism is that we immediately think about. Going really frontline with guns and open doors in really dangerous country where it is really really not safe for women you know it's not not safe for men but even worse for women, and we don't see all the really work uh, that is beyond and this is not only this kind of job you can do there is judges there is uh, intelligence services analysis and etc that are not not in combat position, if I can say so. Um, so I think the, um, having bring awareness of what it is really to work in the city field, what are the diversity of the job inside this field as well, uh, can be really interesting. But I think we really need to start early to raise uh, this awareness among young girls, but also young boys as well, before them to understand that they can do any type of task, there is not such feminine one or soft one because this is one of the one key gender side effects we we observed in the report as well is that there is a tend to put women into specific tasks like search women for example and what is called pigeon holding uh, uh, as well but to really limit women uh, action in the field based on their gender. Men can do also really well prevention I guess uh, so uh, the it should we should enlarge the the possibilities in the in the mind of the young population about what they can do in the field or, or not right, no, just to, to
1: throw in one more thing I think too about Pushing this perception, social perception that women need to have the time to raise the family in addition to the career. Whereas, can't we encourage that men should be just as much part of raising the family and therefore the career and family and the sort of the home and the public, the private can all be shared? It would help everybody to sort of progress further, also to have that sense of commitment to their families further. I I think that's something that we need to push alongside the sort of Everyone can do everything. Careers. Everyone can also do everything in their in their social lives and their in their homes.
0: Amen to that. Um, you produce finally ten recommendations. Um, I won't read them all out, but can each of you tell me which is your preferred or best recommendation that you would have to pick out of the ten in order to see your vision really kind of come alive, flow. I think if we really have
2: to choose one it would be maybe the the fourth one which is really to demonstrate the operational um benefits of having more women in uh, counterterrorism uh, as well. Because and I really understand the ethic and legal and moral uh, arguments about it. But let's be realistic at one point. If only morals and ethic will run uh, progress, I think we will not advance so much. So um, I think it is really important to put this into a reality and show to uh people working in counterterrorism that it actually brings something new and interesting into the table and that it will enable them to be more efficient in their
0: activities. Excellent. And Jess, what which is your favorite?
1: I think if I had to choose one, which I agree with was difficult, um, it would be the number three, to adopt a comprehensive approach. Because I feel like with, with gender mainstreaming we so often focused on one piece of it. Whereas until we can have a comprehensive approach to gender mainstreaming, we're never really gonna solve any of the problems would be my argument. So yes, we definitely need to include more women. We need to make more space for women. We need to include diversity of all kinds. We need to uh, challenge the sort of institutional, structural gender inequalities. We need to, to think about policy. We need to think about funding for these types of efforts. We need to think about so many elements using a gender lens to understand the threat to understand the response. So, if we if we really want to truly get to that gender equal environment to really gender mainstream security and, and counterterrorism, I think we really have to focus on having this comprehensive approach. Would be my argument.
0: I don't think I would disagree with either of you in one way or another, because I think all 10 recommendations are very, very good. I would point out that comprehensive approach is a title that's now been used so many times in so many different places, um, because it also refers to a comprehensive approach that brings together civil and military capabilities. But I do agree that if we were to take them in general, stop focusing just on putting a senior woman there, and then you don't have to think about what happens below, or... Stop focusing just on recruiting more women without thinking how they're going to advance their careers within a very male dominated environment or stop expecting women to think like men, given that all the structures have been created by men, according to male thinking. So I think in every respect, there's a lot to be said for what you call the comprehensive approach and what I would call common sense. Anyway, that's been a fascinating conversation and it's a wrap on this episode of Wise Brussels Voices. Thank you so much to our guests, Jessica White and our own Florence Ferrando. We'd also like to thank our technical team at Free Range Productions. Keep listening to our conversations and support us with a subscription on your podcast platform. Leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And of course, add to the conversation with your comments. On all media as Wise Brussels, so reach out on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and even TikTok. Learn more about Wise Brussels on our website wise brussels.org. I'm Ilana Beitel and my friend and producer Florence Ferrando, and we'll be back very soon with another great conversation.